Hello and welcome to the season three premiere of Lady Justice, Women of the Court podcast. In this episode, the Lady Justices and a very special guest will honor the United States Constitution and their unique state constitutions. In honor of Constitution Day, we begin with a few words from the late Justice Ginsburg. But I think the genius of our Constitution is what Justice Thurgood Marshall said. He said he doesn't celebrate the original Constitution, but he does celebrate what the Constitution has become now, well over two centuries, and that is the concept of we the people has become ever more inclusive. Justice Rhonda Wood of the Arkansas Supreme Court shares one of her favorite parts of the United States Constitution. One of my favorite parts of the Constitution is the preamble, which a lot of people are familiar with the first few words, but they may miss a couple words that follow that. And it is, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. And so I always think about that that when we're ruling in the court system, that it's we the people establish justice. So the justice system is established by the people. The Constitution is established by the people. And so it's not the courts, it's not the legislature, it's not the president. And the same thing in regards to the states. It's the people that establish justice. It's just one of the truly great things about our Constitution. Today, the Lady Justices welcome their first male guest, Chief Judge Jeffrey S. Sutton of the Sixth Circuit. Chief Judge Sutton, one of America's most distinguished judges, is the author of 51 Imperfect Solutions, States and the Making of American Constitutional Law. The Lady Justices and special guest Chief Judge Sutton discuss the importance of attorneys raising state constitutional provisions specifically how state constitutions can provide more rights and protections for its citizens over the United States Constitution. Our hosts also shed light on their state's first and most recent constitutional amendments and the importance of the amendment process. Finally, the lightning round will focus on the hot button topic, whether our guests place punctuation inside or outside of the quotation marks their latest and greatest Halloween costumes, and lastly, Godfather or Star Wars. That's what's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. We never imagined our little podcast that we started during COVID would be starting its third season. We begin this podcast to focus on the importance of state courts and the work we do and our similarities and differences. Bridget, Beth, and at the beginning, Eva, and I thought federal courts got all the attention. This is despite that most people's encounters are with courts and state courts. One tradition was that we start every season with Constitution Day, and this year we are going to shake things up a little bit. I'm joined again by my very dear friends, Chief Justice Bridget McCormick from Michigan, Beth Walker, Justice from the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. But today we have a special guest joining us. And for the first time, we have a male guest, Court of Appeals judge. And brace yourselves for this shocker. We have a federal judge, despite our preferred focus on state courts. But it's more appropriate when you hear why we have Chief Judge Jeffrey S. Sutton joining us today. Judge Sutton was appointed and confirmed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in 2003. He graduated law school from Ohio State, which some of you listeners may recognize as the same school from Justice Walker. So maybe, Jeff, you can tell us some stories about her. He clerked at the Second Circuit as well as for two U.S. Supreme Court justices, the Honorable Lewis Powell Jr. and the Honorable Antonin Scalia. Judge Sutton has had a robust legal career, which included serving as Solicitor General of Ohio. Judge Sutton has become the Chief Judge of the Sixth Circuit since 2021. So welcome, Jeff, to our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be breaking at least two glass ceilings 
by being a guest on your show. And I, I must say, I, I, um, I just love the idea of a podcast that's focused on the state courts. It really is amusing that we focus so much on the federal courts, given the number of cases that run through the state court system. I mean, the last time I looked at this, you know, the numbers, it's hard to figure out exactly what the numbers, exactly which number you should use, but it's something like this. I think if you looked at the state court system for the last year, I looked, it's in the 40, 50 million range, number of cases running through the state court system and the, the federal thousand, so 400,000 versus 40 to 50 million. If you focus just on criminal cases, it's 70,000 in the federal system, 17 million in the state system, and still all we want to focus on are the federal court cases in the federal constitution. So it's, um, yeah, you, you really wonder. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one other story that might amuse you. I was giving a talk about state constitutions to the Cincinnati Bar Associations or a couple of bar associations in Cincinnati. And um, and I was saying, yeah, you know, I think we're, uh, we're getting to the point where, you know, eventually this is really going to take off and People are going to start paying attention to state constitutional claims and realizing the salience of state courts. And then I paused and said, you know, but I do worry this could be like a little like American soccer, where we keep saying American soccer is going to take off and eventually we're going to win the World Cup. And all of a sudden I get a question from a young woman in the audience who says, um, well, Jeff, I, I like your point, but you might uh, want to know that the American national team has already won three World Cups. It just happens to be the women's team and not your preferred focus, the men's team. Oh, how awkward that was. But maybe maybe that's a good analogy. Maybe state constitutions are a little farther along than I realized. And because we don't pay as much attention to them, we maybe haven't appreciated that they really are becoming significant. There's so many areas where the U.S. Supreme Court is either withdrawing, take um, gerrymandering, abortion, or maybe doesn't have quite as big a footprint, uh, the death penalty, even gun regulation, the, the, I think the court is leaving quite a bit of room for the states. So the spotlight's on state legislatures and state courts and state constitutions. So it's an exciting time to be talking about this. Well, Jeff, thank you. And it is so nice to have you on the podcast for two reasons. Number one, I think we've all heard you speak in various contexts, and there is no one who speaks more eloquently, even us, I must say, about the scope and the range of state courts and state constitutions. And so we're just thrilled to have you here, and we're going to talk about your books in a minute. But I am personally thrilled. I have already course, cited you, your books on this very podcast and admitted my standing as a bit of a Judge Sutton fangirl because, of course, we were law school classmates, not only sharing the same law school, but we graduated together. You, of course, ran with a much smarter crowd than I did, probably, um, but I have been a fan of yours for a long time, and I'm just so thrilled with uh, everything you've done, including um, putting your emphasis on state, uh, state courts and state constitutions. So thank you so much for coming on today. It's great to have you here. Well, Beth, it's great to be with a classmate again. Um, we not only share Ohio State, judging, a love for Ohio, but we also didn't learn anything about state constitutions at Ohio <laughs> State because they didn't teach the class. So Until you started teaching it. <laughs> well, I wish I could say it was different uh, at NYU Law School, but it wasn't, or at uh, the University of Michigan Law School, where I've been teaching for 20-some years, but it's not. I think there's still not a course on state constitutions, but I will still say go blue because the two of you are here. It is great to see you, Jeff. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really a treat for us. Your books have been very important to me as well. I know I've also talked about them on the podcast and cited them in at least one opinion, I think two. I should have checked that before this morning, but I have learned a ton from your books and, and listening to you over the years. Um, in addition to the caseloads that you cited, uh, we talk a lot about how state Supreme Courts also have constitutional administrative oversight of the courts of the state. And as you well know, lots of those many millions of cases that our state courts adjudicate every year, people have to navigate, litigants navigate without lawyers. And so our administrative oversight work is something we talk about a lot. And another reason why state Supreme Courts in our view, are so important in our communities. But we're really looking forward to this conversation, and we're so glad you're here, Jeff. Thank you. 
Well, and since we're talking about your books, for those of you listening, that's one of the reasons we chose you is because of your two recent books, 51 Imperfect Solutions, States in the Making of American Constitutional Law, and Who Decides States as Laboratories for Constitutional Experimentation. And we will provide a link on our Podbean website, but anyone who wants them, you can also get them at Amazon, but I also mentioned Walmart because, you know, we're in Arkansas, um, that you can find them there as well. But Jeff, I will say America needed these books for a long time. Um, and for someone to draw attention to Supreme Courts and more, more specifically to the uniqueness of the, and variety of state constitutions. But I have to ask, as a federal judge, aren't you a unique choice as the author? And what led you to write them? Yes, it's very strange. And I can deepen the mystery because this is my 20th year as a federal judge, and I just don't get these cases. I, I've maybe had four or five cases that had a state con law issue in it. I can't think of one of them where there was true authority to independently interpret it, um, either because the state court was lockstepping with the federal provision, so there wasn't much room, or it really wasn't that pertinent to the case. So I, I rarely get the issues. I hadn't appreciated this when I started down this road. That's actually a benefit for me because it means I'm never recused. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I can kind of say what I want and it just doesn't really come up. So I, I didn't appreciate this. But, you know, the, I mentioned earlier that when Beth and I were at Ohio State, as at most law schools, they didn't offer a class on state con law. And my kind of revelation about it came through being the Ohio Solicitor General in the mid 90s when, as I tell my students, I could teach a semester-long class about state constitutional law based solely on cases I lost in the Ohio Supreme Court under the Ohio Constitution. So, you know, this ignorance was not bliss. It had painful consequences for the people of Ohio. I just kept losing these really consequential cases, school funding, school vouchers, tort reform, criminal procedure. And it just, you know, so, I mean, that's, I suppose, the slightly amusing feature of it. The more serious part of it was to just realize that our narrative of American con law was quite skewed. And we, we kind of have this single story of one great court, great constitution as the sole guardian of our liberties. And those cases made me realize this, that's just not quite true. Um, the federal story components to it, think Brown versus Board of Education, but that state experience made me realize that state court judges, even elected judges in the Ohio Supreme Court, they're elected every six years now in partisan elections, they've been, you know, they've been as progressive as U.S. Supreme Court justices during this same period of time. In fact, many of the cases I lost had initially been won by the state in the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, the school funding case that I lost, you know, in the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Rodriguez in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected really the identical claim. And so I, that, that just was a revelation to me that, you know, why are we not teaching this? Why are litigants not paying more attention to it? Clients usually like to win. You'd think they would, you know, take this second opportunity if, if it's there. So that's when I started teaching it. And eventually for weird reasons of my own, I couldn't stop writing about it. Um, Bridget, I have to ask you because Jeff said that he'd had four or five cases as a, on the federal bench, but I started wondering how many cases have you had about state constitutional law, even as a state justice. Honestly, it surprises me how often we do not see a litigant raise a state constitutional claim, especially where the state constitutional language is slightly different than the federal constitutional language. And there's kind of a an open canvas for what it might mean. I can remember colleague Steve Markman asking litigants, often the state appellate defender office, which is a great office, why they hadn't raised a state constitutional claim where there might've been room for a different answer than there was given the federal constitutional authority. So it's, I think we see it a little bit more in the last few years, and that might be related to some of Jeff's opening comments at the top of the podcast, but I would say not very often. I don't know. Is it different in West Virginia or Arkansas? I have to say, you know, I was thinking about this 
question in preparation for our, our chat today. And I must admit that I have probably done more research about the West Virginia Constitution to prepare for our annual Constitution Day episode than I have in order to prepare to write opinions. I love it every time, you know, when we put some things together and talk about how our constitutions are amended or how long they've been around or or all of that. And then just looking at some of the provisions, I mean, it's just something, you know, I don't dust off and use. And it's, I'm just so glad, you know, part of this is, and Jeff, I appreciate you talking about how, you know, federal, you know, all the attention goes to federal courts and the, the United States Supreme Court, which it should, you know, it's easier for the media to cover that because it's, uniform everywhere. But part of the responsibility is on us too. We need to be out there talking about state courts and what we do and being engaged with the public, being involved in our communities so that people know what we're doing. So that's part of this podcast as well. So I think I think your your efforts are great, but it sort of challenges us to do our jobs even better as well. Yeah, I agree. I know I when you said a handful of cases, I was thinking well, I'm sitting here on the Supreme Court and I've seen a handful of cases. And I actually, it's hard. You go through and you look, I was writing an opinion recently and I, I would look through, you know, going through what we used to call shepherdizing, right? I mean, you go through all the old cases and I was like, did anyone raise the state claim? You know, every single case was citing, you know, like the Eighth Amendment or something. And I was going through, anybody raised Arkansas and you go all the way back and it's like, no, never, you know. So I was like, it's still out there, <laughs> guys. <laughs> Dialing in more to the to our constitutions, you know, we often talk about how our state constitutions can provide more rights if, if people would raise them um, and protections for our citizens than the U.S. Constitution. But Jeff, interestingly, in your first book, you really point out that on occasion, the U.S. Supreme Court will interpret the constitution in a way, the federal constitution, in a manner that allows for state courts to actually lower constitutional protections, which is something we never really think about. Can you explain how this works, particularly in terms of the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule, which is what you talk about um, in your first book? Right. I mean, as I was listening to you all, I, I was finding myself thinking that criminal procedure would really be a great area to focus on in this, you know, with all 50 state courts, talking to public defenders. And one reason I say that is, um, you know, no surprise, we're in a little bit of a polarized era and, and good for you guys for getting the full spectrum of judges on this podcast. I love seeing that. I wish we had more of it. But, you know, criminal procedure is actually kind of complicated uh, in terms of so-called right-left. Um, Justice Scalia cared deeply about criminal procedure protections, and he wrote some significant opinions. You know, his successor, Justice Gorsuch, actually seems to be even more focused on it. So I, I wonder if the state court level, at the state court level, this is an area where there's really an opportunity for litigants to bring the issue, but then state courts to really take seriously whether they can be charting different paths. And the, you know, the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule and the exclusionary rule in general strike me as a, a wonderful story about how con law develops and how dangerous it is to think of it as a single story. You know, the exclusionary rule takes about 75 years before the court finally nationalizes it in, you know, our state, Beth, Terry versus Ohio. Of course, it's problematic that they were reversing us, but we'll put that to the side. The reality is Terry versus Ohio nationalizes the exclusionary rule in 1961 and it's a, you could call it a, you know, an engaged court when it comes to muscular interpretations of criminal procedure protections in the Warren Court. And let's face it, we're not living with the Warren Court anymore. And, you know, by 1984, when um, the Burger Court announces the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule, it's a different court. I mean, not so much uh, necessarily just because it's different justices. It's just a court that's maybe a little more sensitive to state experimentation, a little less focused on, you know, one size fits all top down constitutional rules. And what's really interesting is you not only have a US Supreme Court that on criminal procedure became a little less protective of criminal defendants rights, you have state courts filling this gap. Um, so I, it's almost half the states have rejected Leon and said, listen, uh, we realize Leon 
says you don't have to, to exclude the evidence if the officers made a good faith mistake, but so be it. Um, we're basically going to have kind of a strict liability regime because of a desire not to reward police misconduct. I mean, I think that's probably the animating reason for the state court decisions in this area. And I, I just think it's um, it's so healthy because you you kind of have, a, we now have a situation where half the states really follow the exclusionary rule, you know, quite formally and say, if, you know, if you have a constitutional violation, you're not letting the evidence in. And you have a federal court system and about half the states say, well, we're only going to keep the evidence out if there was something that smacks of bad faith, or at least it's not good faith. And, you know, to me, that's, that's kind of how this should work. You should have an opportunity for, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court, they've got nine justices, nothing's going to be perfect. And uh, when they err a little one way or the other, the state courts have a lot of room to maneuver. I'll just say one other thing about this area, which to me illustrates why what you're doing with this podcast is so important in terms of educating lawyers. You know, the key word in the Fourth Amendment is the word unreasonable. You know, that's not exactly a one size fits all word. In fact, it kind of begs for different approaches. And what I love about the reality that all 51 constitutions, I, I think I'm right about this, have a search and seizure guarantee. And to the extent they don't, I think it's in a statute. So basically all 51 regimes have this word unreasonable. And what's so wonderful about such a broad word is it lets state courts customize their own approaches to specific law enforcement individual encounters to, you know, whether it's their own culture, their own history, even their own policy considerations. I mean, state court judges are common law judges. So it's not unsurprising when they deploy common law methods for figuring out what the word unreasonable means. And that strikes me as very positive. I'll just say one other thing, because I suspect there's a few of your acute listeners out there going, oh, but Jeff, this is so foolish. Are we now going to have all these you know, two sets of rules in every state? And isn't that complicated for law enforcement and the individual? And that's just not true. The only rule that matters in a state is the most liberty protective rule. And um, that's not problematic for individuals or law enforcement. They just have to, police officers just got to follow whatever the more protective rule, whether it's the U.S. Supreme Court's rule or the you know West Virginia Supreme Court's rule, they just got to follow the one that's more protective and they'll be fine. So I, I love that story. And I, I love the, well, I have a great hope that criminal procedure will be an area where state constitutions really come to thrive and become quite independent. So Beth, I'm curious since, you know, how, how did West Virginia, what did, what did it, what path did it go? So West Virginia, uh, early on, as early as, I guess, a year or two later in 1986, gives a very nice discussion of the U.S. versus Leon ruling and avoided it entirely <laughs> and says, there it is. Isn't it pretty? There it is. And we are not going to, we're not going to reject it and we're not going to adopt it. We're going to really, in all of the cases, it hasn't even been mentioned in West Virginia since 2018, since before I got on the court. Normally, the in most of the cases, the court takes a look at the warrant that is involved and reasons for one way or another that the warrant was so defective that no idiot would have followed it. So it doesn't, I mean, in so many words, not those words, much more eloquently, of course, but, and and basically has dodged this consistently since 1984. So West Virginia is in the, has not adopted it column, and but hasn't explicitly rejected other than uh, by ignoring it. How about Michigan? So Michigan waited a while and eventually did adopt the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule in, but not until 2004 in a case called People versus Goldston. Um, it percolated for a long time and the court kind of dodged it, I think, waiting to sort of see where other states were going. I, I have to agree with Jeff. It's I think it's fascinating that it's kind of a 50-50 regime right now. And I wonder if any of the scholars looking at policing, I, I, I honestly don't know the answer, have done any empirical work based on the different, you know, constitutional rules. Maybe somebody else knows the answer to that. I, I'd be, you know, one of, I think, the benefits of state Supreme Courts interpreting broad terms like unreasonable 
differently or slightly differently or very differently is it probably does allow us to see if different legal rules make a difference on the ground. And I think that might be one of the big upsides of having state Supreme Courts get to make their own decisions. I will say that in addition to unreasonable being a broad term, I also think the good faith exception itself is quite broad and allows for lots of interpretive work on the part of courts, both state and federal. How about Arkansas? Yeah, so I can say this since I'm on the Arkansas Supreme Court. I think Arkansas did or appeared appears to have done what I would hope states shouldn't do. So the Supreme Court, the Leon decision came down in 84. Arkansas in 85 quickly jumped on board, but their opinion has no analysis. So and the best way I describe it for non-lawyers that listen is it was sort of like turning in the answer to your algebra without showing your work. And so they just said, well, Supreme Court said this is what we can do. So we're just doing it. And it's what we talk about all the time is that we don't want state courts doing something just because that's what the U.S. Supreme Court did. So if it's a well-reasoned that this is what we think is the right path for Arkansas and based on our constitution as well, then so be it. But it appears that it was more of a sort of knee-jerk reaction. And our court hasn't really revisited it. They expanded it a little bit in 1990, again, without a whole lot of analysis. So I can be critical since since it's my my state, but that is the law in Arkansas. And I just think it was interesting that it was so quick without, you know, showing their work. The other thing we wanted to talk about is, and you know, I like I said, I like analogies, obviously, is Jeff, you have a really interesting one. And we're talking about raising, you know, both the state claim and the federal claim is in your book, you have one involving basketball. And so I wanted you to share that with our listeners because we have a lot of lawyers that listen, but we have a also a lot of non-lawyers that listen. And to try to explain to them the state right and constitutional claim and federal claim. I think that's one of the best analogies I've heard. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that. Yeah, and the three of you come from states with pretty good state schools in basketball. Um, some <laughs> of them better than Ohio State, which is hard for me to admit. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it is so strange. I mean, one thing we all know as judges is that lawyers tend not to be reluctant to make extra arguments. In fact, when we give talks to bar associations, we're constantly asked, you know, any advice for the young lawyers or middle-aged lawyers, whatever it might be. And I, I know what I say, and I know what I hear a lot of these is, you know, make sure you, you focus your argument a little bit. Don't just do a kitchen sink approach. And we say that because we see a lot of kitchen sink approaches. Um, take a criminal procedure case. I mean, when was the last time you ran into a criminal defense lawyer who had an arguable Fourth Amendment claim under the U.S. Constitution, an arguable Fifth Amendment claim under the U.S. Constitution, and they didn't bring both. I mean, they always will bring Fourth and Fifth Amendment. And yet, oddly enough, in a state criminal prosecution, they won't bring the federal Fourth Amendment and the state search and seizure claim or the state, you know, confrontation claim or whatever it is. And to me, you know, just ask yourself the last time you saw a basketball game where you get a two-shot free throws because of a two-shot foul, the player misses the first shot and doesn't take the second shot. I mean, that's never happened. I mean, you can go down to CYO basketball in all of American history and no one has not taken the second shot. And, you know, why wouldn't you? And here the shot's like really important. It's not just getting a point for your team. It's stopping a criminal prosecution and keeping someone potentially out of jail. So it is mystifying. Lawyers like to win. Clients like to win even more. And yet we're not taking these opportunities. I think there's a real chicken egg problem. You all are referees. You're not players. Uh, You can't pull issues into the case. You can only decide what's in front of you. I do think there's a role for lower court, state court judges, you know, particularly at the trial level to, as the issues are being framed, to clarify, are you relying just on the federal, just on the state? That's not, doesn't strike me as a terrible idea to make sure everyone's aware of that possibility. And if so, bringing it, you know, I've yet to see a state court do this. 
uh, but that would but it'd be very interesting. And I think the issue will arise at some point, whether it's ineffective assistance of counsel in a criminal case solely to bring the federal claim. And of course, the ineffective assistance claim could be under federal or state law, but definitely possibly state law. You could see that coming out either way, but it is it is funny that that's how it works. But I, I do think it's it's just as simple as the second shot in basketball. Uh, I, I don't understand how it's any more complicated than that. I mean, it, I guess it's a little easier to just shoot a second free throw as opposed to do a little research, but isn't that true of all law? And what licensed lawyer in America would say, oh, you're asking me to take a second shot, but then do the research for it? That doesn't strike me as a very solid answer. No, I think I think it's just a great a great way of putting it out there for people to and maybe that's what we need to be teaching law students, you know, to help them understand that. It does seem like maybe a failure of legal education, though. I mean, it's some mm-hmm. kind of market failure, right? Right. I mean, why? Usually, if people aren't doing something, maybe there's some like unintended consequence we're worried about, right? And you can't, but there's not one. I mean, you know, the the state constitution can't be interpreted by your court to provide fewer protections than the federal mm-hmm. constitution. So I don't, it feels like a big market failure that I don't <laughs> understand. So I can't help. Well, I was just going to say one thing that has me slightly hopeful is I do schools are teaching state kind of law. I think Stanford has started teaching it and mm-hmm. Professor Schaffer has a really big class there. And, and uh, so I, my, my hope is that that might happen. And I, and I think if the U.S. Supreme Court is going to, you know, kind of put up stop signs in some really consequential areas of federal constitutional law, it seems like it's really natural to say, well, why wouldn't we shift the debate to a state claim in state court? And, you know, maybe that will encourage more law schools to teach the topic. But I, yeah, I do think it's a market failure. I agree with that. I, I forgot about Jane. Schachter's class, Jeff, and I actually visited in it last fall. You're right. I think once Stanford starts teaching it, we might be um, on the cusp of some change. So, okay, you gave me hope. (laughs) Well, and I was going to say, we see a lot of sort of repeat appellate counsel, um, especially in criminal cases. I think at our court, you know, by the time, I mean, granted, we're getting mainly just life and death cases at our at Supreme Court level. But, uh, you know, I've thought, it, you know, is it a matter of just dropping footnotes? And I think that's what I did recently is, is saying, you know, recognize we're only addressing this under the federal Eighth Circuit, Eighth, Eighth Amendment claim because they didn't make this claim, you know, or whatever, you know, just dropping a footnote as the state claim, you know, recognize we're not addressing that, you know, search. And, and I think that, you know, these attorneys are bright enough that they're like, she's suggesting, you know, and I'm not, you know, but just saying I I would address it. I'm not saying you're going to get that right, but I'd be happy to address it if you raised it, that these attorneys are, you know, are going to start talking about it at least. And sometimes it just takes one innovator. I mean, you know, the other side of that is, of course, you know, the day in day out work of defending folks accused and convicted of crimes is done by a lot of folks who are not well-paid, who are doing this as a matter of principle and are really busy. Um, And I think sometimes, and that's not an excuse, of course, for, you know, but because of course, I'm not suggesting for a moment that they're not protecting. And that's where all of these, you know, sort of kitchen sink, you know, they have all the standard briefs and all of that. Sometimes you just need an innovator and, uh, you know, those you know, we we come across those people all the time. It's not always in states as small and as is West Virginia. Normally, it'll happen someplace bigger, like Ohio or Michigan or Texas. But it it happens eventually. And you know, an innovator like Jeff, who you know really has you know is literally writing the book about teaching state constitutional law and opening people's eyes about you know what you can teach, even though it may not at this moment, be on the bar exam, and it may not, you know, be in the normal script for law school. It's certainly something that's important. And we're so glad you're doing it. You're getting ready. I guess you're in your third or fourth edition of your textbook, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, well, well, fourth edition, but you, I have a slight bone to pick. I, I'm going to say it's with the other 47 state high courts and not your three. But my understanding is that quite a few states have taken state con law off the bar exam. I, I, I do appreciate one part of this, which is making bar exams 
less localized. I appreciate the need for lawyers to travel and stay employed and all of that. But it does seem if one takes that approach, it doesn't seem like it'd be a terrible idea to have a state supplement, even if it just had a couple straightforward questions, including at least one on the state constitution. So I hope, because that could help too, I think, then, then they'd be forced to learn a little bit on it. Well, so I'm curious, Beth or Bridget, have you had the occasion to have a state claim where you have afforded someone more rights through the state constitution than they have had through the federal constitution? And and the answer may be no, because we haven't had that many opportunities, but Bridget, has that happened in Michigan yet? It, it has. So there's one example that long predates my career on the court, the Michigan Supreme Court's decision in SITS versus Department of State Police, even though the U.S. Supreme Court had held in that very case, actually, that police sobriety checkpoints didn't violate the Fourth Amendment, the United States Constitution. The Michigan Supreme Court held that they, they did violate the Michigan Constitution's prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures, even though the, the language of both provisions is substantially the same. But, but a more a more recent example, although maybe it's a standard deviation away from your question, Rhonda, so I apologize if so, but in a series of cases just at the end of this past term, where a series of questions about our state constitution's cruel um, and unusual punishment provision, the court held that our state constitution provision provided greater protection than the United States Supreme Court has held that the Eighth Amendment provides. Now, the reason why I say it might be a standard deviation away from your question is our state constitutional language is not cruel and unusual punishment, it's cruel or unusual punishment, which is obviously a textual difference. And as a result, there is longstanding precedent from my court saying that it means something more than, than the Eighth Amendment. But in a series of cases just last term, we applied that precedent to juvenile sentencing and held greater protection for, for juveniles facing long sentences. I don't know. What about West Virginia, Beth? So, you know, we don't get a lot of sort of dual, you know, federal, state, you know, normally it's one or the other. But I will say, you know, they're just like, as I talked about with the good faith except, exception exclusionary rule, where we've basically just left it off to the side, we being West Virginia, not necessarily me or our current court, you know, we have a whole sort of interesting line of cases. I wrote one in 2019 about our recidivist statute. And, you know, of course, that's a statute for our non-lawyer listeners where a legislature will prescribe a life sentence. Uh, basically, sometimes it's called three strikes. It goes by other names. But you, if you have enough serious convictions, you will end up with a life sentence, even if one of one or two of those convictions would not have had that result. And so we're constantly looking under the constitutional provision of whether it is a disproportionate punishment. Um, and that's the, the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution issue. But we have Article 3, Section 5 of the West Virginia Constitution, and really all of the development of the law has been under our state constitution. I wrote State versus Hoyle in 2019, which dealt with sort of a conflict. We are constantly considering, you know, do two out of three of the felony convictions have to be involved violence or threat of violence. We have a whole test, which is more detailed than we need to get into, but it is very much just an analysis under West Virginia law. We don't really look to that. We know the feds are out there and I'm sure in the initial stages, it was based on federal cases, but most of our argument is pretty much strictly under West Virginia law. And so that's an example of one where we're probably going our own way, probably slightly more protective of individual rights than uh, the federal, because that's kind of how West Virginia has trended, you know, sort of over decades. Uh, but that's just one example. Rhonda, how about Arkansas? Yeah, so the only one I could really think of was probably early on on the court, when I was on the court, is um, not going to announce there. I think there had been sort of, and probably still is, a split in the circuits about if someone's out on parole and has consented to basically, you can come in my residence at any time whether or not there has to be a knock and announce for them to do that because they're still sort of in custody in that sense. And the um, defendant had actually raised Article 2 of the Arkansas Constitution um, in addition to the federal. 
So we just sort of, you know, ignored the split in the feds and we just said under the Arkansas Constitution, you have to knock and announce and if you're a parolee status. And so we did that. Bridget, I'm interested in what you've said. Um, all of the juvenile sentencing cases, they've never raised an Arkansas state claim. Um, you know, there's been a lot of questions about extending some of the U.S. Supreme Court decisions about juvenile sentencing, but and that there's yet to be any Arkansas constitutional um, claim in our cases. So we have not visited that. So can I uh, can I mention two? Yeah, things? it's yeah, go. You guys are sparking all these ideas. Well, so first of all, consistent, Bridget, with Michigan, or I don't know if it's exactly consistent, but they also, the Washington Supreme Court, they have a constitution that also says cruel or unusual. And they recently had a decision that said you couldn't have life without parole for certain 19, 20 year olds. So in other words, beyond age of majority, which is super interesting. And I, I bet is similar. But the broader point, this goes back a little bit to why aren't lawyers paying attention and why, especially in the criminal procedure area, are they not paying attention? And I think this goes back to this assumption, which I think is quite flawed, that it's the federal constitution and the federal life tenure judges that are going to be the most protective of criminal defendants' rights. And there's a recent book, I'm sad to say, I'm not going to remember the author's name, but he's He's with the Marshall Project, and one of their objectives is to end or cut back on the death penalty across the country. And it's a really interesting book. So it's written by, I don't, I don't think he'd mind my calling him an abolitionist, but someone who opposes the death penalty. And he's comparing two approaches to cutting back on the death penalty. Approach number one is nationalize it through decisions like Furman versus George in the 1970s which ultimately did not work. In fact, one could make the argument led to more executions because the states really pushed back. At the time of Furman versus Georgia, the states weren't aggressively imposing capital punishments, but they really resisted the idea of the national court telling them what to do. Suddenly you have this wave of capital punishments and executions, and it's only in the last five years to 10 years where the efforts have been much more local, have they really cut back on the number of executions in the country? So I'm not, I'm not taking a position on what's better or worse. I'm just trying to say criminal procedure is an area people care deeply about. It's one I think there's been some suspicion historically about state courts' willingness to enter the fray. And it turns out that localism has been a much better approach goal is to have fewer executions. And that's the that's the thesis of his book. And believe it or not, he focuses on Texas. I mean, he, he's going after the state where you would think this is the hardest battle to win. And, you know, Michigan doesn't have a death penalty. Ohio has one, but it, it's Ohio's a really good example. It has not been enforced in several years. I think there's a, some ambivalence about it. But anyway, the point is localism, don't assume localism means individual rights aren't protected, especially not protected in criminal cases. This book is showing quite the opposite can be true in an area that, you know, has a lot of political valence, capital punishment. So anyway, hope springs eternal. Well, another thing that we have talked about a lot is on some of the other Constitutional Day podcasts that we've done is amendments. And so in the interest of time, I'm going to let you guys decide whether you want to talk about your First Amendment to your Constitution or the last amendment to the Constitution. So I'm going to let Beth, you go first. Which one? Um, okay. Best? So I think I will choose the most recent activity. Of course, Jeff, you've written about how much, e how it's much easier by and large, to amend state constitutions than it is the federal constitution. And um, while West Virginia does not have sort of a citizen referendum option in constitutional amendments, we do our constitution is amended by the legislature. And recently, our legislature has gotten very interested in amending the constitution. So on our ballot a year ago, I reported that on the, the ballot in November of 2022, there would be three amendments to the constitution. Now there will be four. And just very quickly, our, our voters will decide in November the scope of the judiciary's power in impeachment proceedings, uh, whether the legislature, that's one, whether the legislature 
will have more latitude to grant exemptions from personal property tax for corporations. That's two. Whether churches can be incorporated. That's three. And four, the scope of our legislators' ability to decide or to consider policies of our Board of Education. So those are three or four very separate possible amendments to the West Virginia Constitution. And I think that's really interesting. Those are interesting. And we've talked before. So we we have our legislature gets three possible amendments proposed. And then we have a lot of citizen initiatives. We don't know what will be on because those are actually being challenged in our court right now. But I'm going to tell you about the first amendment to the Arkansas Constitution because it's pretty interesting. Our Constitution right now um, is our 1874 Constitution. And the First Amendment came following because what happened was back from Reconstruction, there were all types of bonds. And in 1869, our legislature had passed a bill allowing repayment of these bonds. And that was so controversial, it led to, which is famous in Arkansas, there's all kinds of books, the Brooks-Baxter War. So we had our own little war going on in Arkansas. And it in turn led to our current fifth constitution. But there was all kinds of fear that the new legislature was going to again pass in the future a bill to repay these bonds. And so because of that, that was the first amendment to the constitution to prohibit there ever being a bill to ever repay those reconstruction bonds. And so that is amendment one to the Arkansas constitution. So Bridget, do you have an amendment you want me to talk about? Well, yeah, Michigan is, we amend a lot in Michigan. And I, I like West Virginia, we are likely to have a number of amendments on the ballot in the fall. I'm going to stay away from those because I think they, many of them are subject to challenge and maybe they all are for all I know. And so I think I'll, I'll go back two years and four years, but in 2020, the people of the state of Michigan overwhelmingly approved an amendment to the constitution prohibiting prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures that requires the government to obtain a search warrant before searching a person's electronic data and electronic communications. So I don't even remember like what group brought that one to the ballot, but it, but overwhelmingly the people of the state of Michigan made that part of our constitution in 2018 the voters approved overwhelmingly um, an independent redistricting commission and legalized marijuana and a lot of uh, voter protection provisions. So it's something we do pretty regularly here in Michigan, and it is a lot easier in the in the states than obviously in the federal system. And Jeff, you've talked about that in your most recent book. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm ambivalent about this point. The, the initiatives are so. It makes so much sense. You know, Americans love democracy. They love having a say. And think about 18 states have this initiative option, Ohio included. I think it's half the states have an initiative or referendum option. I guess I'm not opposed to the initiative or direct democracy. I'm a little reluctant about the 51% vote, which is what most states require. Florida's, I think, moved it up to 60%. New Hampshire might be a two-thirds. Some of these constitutions, you'd need a backpack if you were going to carry it around with you everywhere. I mean, they're just so full of all these seeming, a lot of them look like special interest provisions, which doesn't really dignify state constitutions. So I would love to see the the threshold maybe inch up, even just to 55%. I think that would really weed out a lot of things that probably just don't belong in a state constitution, right? I mean, you constitutionalize everything. You've constitutionalized nothing. But at the same time, we're not just going to bash state constitutions. When I get the chance to bash the federal constitution, I'm definitely going to take advantage of it. And I would say that is the central defect of the U.S. constitution, that it's too hard to amend. It's, you know, it requires three quarters of the states. And I think most Americans, most interest groups do not see that as a realistic option with anything remotely controversial. And I think that's been quite hurtful to American constitutional law. You know, we used to have a tradition of amending the U.S. Constitution when we thought the U.S. Supreme Court had made there was some imperfection in the original document. And that tradition seems to have disappeared. I I think if we amend it, we amend it by interpretation, not formal amendment under Article 5. So this is an area where both sets of constitutions maybe have a little room for improvement, maybe make the federal one two-thirds, not three-quarters, and maybe inch the state one up 
a little bit. But, um, you know, one thing that's um, amusing about these initiatives, and I think I think most of your states are probably careful about this. Some are a little casual. Some will let you bundle more than one provision. So you can put a very popular provision. Uh, Florida did this. They had a popular provision, which is Marcy's Law. You're all familiar with that. Victims of criminal offenses, it's basically a, a rights protection uh, for those who've been hurt by crime. And Florida took a very this popular Marcy's Law initiative and bundled it with, I think, one that might have moved up the age for judicial retirement. That's a little funny. And the, the second one was to get rid of Chevron deference. In other words, get rid of deference mm -hmm. to administrative agencies, a very nerdy concept. And so they had they kind of had to take all or none of them. And they took all. So they, they, you know, it's a very clever way to get something done. So I admire the ingenuity of the initiative proponents. Uh, but I think this might explain why a lot of states are pretty careful about single subject rules when it comes to initiatives on ballots. Well, Jeff, at the end here, did you have, I was going to give you an opportunity if you had any question for us. Well, my, my main questions for you are not law, but I'll let you I answer, I'll give you a legal question or you can answer a personal question. So the legal question, if you prefer it is, you know, is there anything specifically your court has done to try to educate lawyers about state constitutions? The more personal question, which I'm probably more interested in is what would you be doing if you weren't a lawyer? Just, does anybody want to Bridget, get- Bridget, you want to start? <laughs> oh, what would I be doing if I weren't a lawyer? That is such a good question. Cause I feel I'm schizophrenic about it. I I'm interested in way too many things. So I feel like I could be happy doing a whole lot of other things. And we've, no reason you would know this, but we've talked a lot about, we're all first generation lawyers. When none of us have ah, in our too. family. Yeah, you too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I had a very random path to law school. And um, I'm, you know, uh, I think could have had just as much a random path to some other profession and probably been pretty happy, but I, I guess I don't have a specific thing that I sit back and think I would be doing. So I'll be interested if Rhonda or Beth do. On the more boring question about what our court does to educate the voters about the state constitution, we, like everybody else, have a lot of constitutional day programming that all the justices participate in for school groups and with bar groups. And we work together, lawyers in local communities. And it's a it's a big part of our judicial education arms work in September. I don't know if it's working or not, but it, it is something we do spend a lot of time on and we find, we feel like it's, it's pretty important. So I don't know, Rhonda. Yeah. So, you know, I sort of have a PowerPoint presentation on constitutional law. And so I, it's usually I'm out in the high schools doing that in September. And then through the podcast course that I think I would either be teaching if I wasn't doing this, or I, I would be hopefully like in some, you know, either in England, Scotland, or you'd find me in some like little unusual town somewhere in the United States where you'd walk in and I'd be the quirky person and owning the used bookstore. And that would be me. And you could ask me about any book and I would tell you, you know, I'd ask about yourself and then I'd find you the perfect book for you. So that would be what I'd be doing. Beth. And so I would have certainly been probably some kind of literature professor if I hadn't gone to law school. I'm not sure if, if fast forward to now, if I weren't a lawyer or a judge, what would I be doing? I'd probably be trying to be, become a better golfer, to be perfectly honest, if I had the luxury of time to do that. But I will just give a quick plug. It will include constitutional issues, but also a much broader look at teaching folks about what our courts do. I'm currently involved in a learning center project in West Virginia. We are setting up the West Virginia Courts Learning Center uh, in our in our uh, in the Capitol near where our courtroom is, and it's going to be high tech because we have hardly any space at all. And so I'm very very excited about it because we have a lot of students and a lot of folks. You can see our Capitol as you drive down the interstate and people just stop by. And so we're hoping they're going to have a better view of what our court system is with our new learning center project. So that's my little initiative right now. Jeff, what would you be if you weren't a judge or a lawyer? Uh, well, law, law was a third choice. And I was uh, 
middle school and high school teacher, and then I also had an interest in the foreign service. I think I would probably be a middle school, high school teacher, be my guess. Coach, too. I love coach. I love sports. So I, I probably would be doing that. Well, this leads right into our lightning round. So we do this lightning round questions, Jeff, and it's a way to get to know everybody better and go alphabetical. So it'll be Beth, Bridget, Jeff, and then me. And we try to give short answers. I'm usually not good at this. So the first question is, do you place punctuation inside or outside the quotation marks when using a quotation in a sentence. Another word is your quote, inclusive or exclusive of the ending punctuation. So So I'll start and say usually inclusive, but uh, like many of these rules that people get fired up about, there are always exceptions. Bridget. Bridget? Um, Definitely inclusive. And I didn't even understand there was an alternative for the opposite. So need to hear more, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'm inclusive. I, I guess I'm maybe maybe this doesn't count because it doesn't end the sentence. Semicolons and colons. So I, I but that that may be outside the question. <laughs> I'm inclusive, but there was a whole Twitter war about this involving Judge Dillard, and so I I, I said I would resolve this. So um, we are unanimous decision out of this podcast court, I guess. Okay, since fall is coming up. Um, I'm curious, what was the last Halloween costume that that you've worn, Beth? You know, I'm just one of those people I, that I don't care for Halloween. So I'm terrible to kick off because I don't even remember because I avoid Halloween <laughs> costumes like crazy. Okay. I should have gone first because my answer is Beth's answer. I don't, no. I literally can't remember the last time I wore a costume on Halloween. I don't hate Halloween. I actually like Halloween. And I, uh, we spend a lot of time, my husband and I, in a little town in West Michigan that has a an adult Halloween parade on, on yeah. the Saturday of Halloween weekend. And there are fantastic costumes, but I'm just a spectator. So I can't remember ever wearing one. <laughs> Jeff? Well, I like Halloween. It's my birthday. So I've got oh, a... Wow. A non-altruistic reason for that. I will say I never wrote, wore a robe uh, in a Halloween <laughs> event. And I suspect the last time when I was, you know, 10 years old and I must have been dressed up as some sports person is all I could think of. You guys are just really disappointing to me. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I was. This Mary is your Pop- question, Rhonda. I was, I was Mary Poppins the last time. Um, oh, my, my husband and I get invited in these Halloween costumes. And so. Um, we're always having to come up with couple costumes, which is really hard. So he was Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. <laughs> ah, that's yeah. good. I will tell. I'm gonna. I'm gonna diverse and t- they've known my granddaughter Blakely, Beth and Bridget do. She dressed up like me for Halloween a couple years ago, and everybody was like, she'd go to the door and they would say, "Oh, you're Judge Judy," and she'd go, "No, I'm Justice Rhonda Wood." <laughs> She went door to door like that. She was so mad that she keeps saying, they keep saying I'm Judge Judy. (laughs) She was just so frustrated. Anyway, if it was game night at your house and you were hosting, what would be the first game that we would play that you would have us play Beth? Uh, It's an oldie but a goodie, Trivial Pursuit. Yes. Bridget. Um, Or I'm sorry, Bridget. It is often game night at my house and we play one game and only one game. And that's the game we would play 25 words or less. And you would really have fun. Jeff. I don't know that I know that game, but I I would play code games. I want to hear what 25 words or less is. Code names is fun too. But once you play 25 words or less, you're going to play only 25 words or less. So we play Pictionary. That's usually the first game in our house. What was your major in college that? So I had two. I majored in English and in political science. Bridget? Political science and philosophy. Jeff? History. Mine was politics. It was a liberal arts college. They didn't have science, so it wasn't political science. It was politics. What did you have for breakfast today, Beth? My normal breakfast, which is oatmeal with some fruit. Bridget? I had my normal breakfast, which is black coffee. Jeff? (laughs) Oh, Lord, that's awful. Uh, (laughs) I put milk in my coffee and I had muesli with fruit. Okay. I had oatmeal. Last question. Godfather or Star Star Wars movies? Beth? 
I have been influenced by my husband, Mr. Walker, who believes that you can, that, that the Godfather movies are a leadership manual in and of themselves. So I'm going to choose the Godfather. I'm failing again, neither. Godfather, just way too violent for me. And Star Wars is Star Wars. So, Jeff? Uh, it's it's just business. Godfather. Yeah. Godfather for me, too. All right. So with that, we will wrap this episode. Thank you again, Judge Jeff Sutton, for taking time to join us. It was an honor and privilege to have you on our podcast and thank you everyone for listening to Lady Justice. If you want to listen to more comparisons specifically on state constitutions, you can listen to episodes one and 11. And as always, you can find us on Twitter until the next episode. With that, take care. As always, thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, please visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or a comment. Please remember the opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Wishing Lady Justice Women of the Court listeners a very happy Constitution Day. Until next time.